0: Uh, So, Catherine Miller is a writer for BuzzFeed, who back in September wrote an article entitled, We Found Rage in a Hopeless Place. (laughs) She basically names 2021 as the year of rage for Americans. And the article is her trying to catalog the various kinds of anger that we've gone through in the last year. The first one she talks about is called Sudden Rage. Uh, The place where she sees this happening most often is apparently the airline industry. Uh, apparently, in 2021, there were 4,000 incidences, 4,000 incidences of what we call disruptive passenger cases. 3,000 of those 4,000 cases were over mask wearing, which I'm still fascinated by those. I, I, get, I, get, uh, I get angry airline people on TikTok all the time, and I'm like, you know that they're going to make you wear a mask. Like, how calculating do you have to be to suddenly be angry about them wanting you to wear it? The second kind of rage she catalogs is uh, what they, she calls um, deep moral anger. This is the kind of anger that came from the medical community who had to watch with every passing wave of COVID, their resources get you know, taxed to the nines and seeing people not be able to get the care that they needed. There was anger on the inside and a crying out of why. Finally, she calls something online anger, and there's no end of research as to what it is about being online that makes us able to be cruel in a way in which we would never be face-to-face. Probably it has something to do with you know, the anonymity that you feel behind your thumbs as you type away some wretched thing that you would never say to people's face. But we've got guidance from you know, people like NBA star Kevin Durant, who said, look, hatred is just another form of passion and therefore a sign that you're really alive. Whatever keep shooting, Kevin. But look, here's the point. Whatever the reason, we are experiencing an an almost unprecedented amount of hostility and anger that's formerly been unknown to most of us. And a lot of us are trying to figure out what to do with it. Now, by that, I don't mean like how you deal with your anger, like, you know, uh, count to 10 or, you know, take a timeout. I'm not talking about that. I'm asking, where do we put it? How do we understand our anger? Because a lot of times we feel this deep need to be angry. We know, especially religious people like ourselves, that there is such a thing as righteous anger, and so we wonder if what we're doing actually sort of rises to that level. There was an early American preacher named John Christensen who once said, He that is angry without cause sins, but he that is not angry when there is cause also sins. And so my guess is we spend a lot of times with our anger trying to figure out whether it's appropriate or justified. Now, how much more do we search for answers, though, when the root of our anger is not our anger, but someone else's anger at us? Think about that for a second. When was the last time you were in a situation where somebody was mad at you? You're pushing a cart through Walmart, and somebody walks up to you, strikes up a conversation, and at one point they say, hey, are uh, you and uh, -and so-and-so okay? I mean, I had a conversation with them recently. (laughs) They're pretty irritated at you. Or maybe you're at your office in the morning, and somebody kind of pops his head around the corner of the office, and is like, "Uh, I think you might have a a situation to deal with because old so-and-so is in there with the boss, and he's really bending his ear about you. Now, my guess is there's probably as many responses to the revelation that someone's angry at you as there are people in this room that range on one of two poles. Some of you probably, on the one hand, would be thrown into a deep, restless panic over the thought that someone's angry with you, while others of you, and you know who you are, kind of tend to thrive on a little bit of the drama, right? It's kind of like, sure, buckle up, we'll take into it. But one thing's for sure you would not be able to resist the almost uncontrollable urge to look into the situation, would you not? You'd be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what? What did you hear? Who said what? We're looking this particular semester to try to move past what I said last week was the ordinariness of Christianity in our lives. And what Paul does in the gospel here is he unpacks Romans, the book of Romans, as a way of saying this is what the gospel is. Last week we found out that he wasn't ashamed of it. Want you to know why? Because he says it's a message of salvation. It's a message of salvation. Now, the question then though is begged, salvation from what? And all of a sudden in verse 18 that we just read, you get the answer. We are saved from God's anger. Now my guess is that would get your attention like it would in any way. I mean, what would you do if your coworker came around tomorrow morning and was like, hey, God's really mad at you. What did you do? It would at least get your attention, right? But nothing is going to purge, I think, our ordinariness of Christianity like the stakes being as high as God's anger being directed at me. And I realized I could hardly have opened a bigger can of worms. So let's see if we can under, unpack this under three headings. First of all, we want to look at the fact that God is angry. We want to consider, secondly, why he's angry. And I think most importantly, we need to figure out how God is angry. How do we know it? How do we recognize it? All right, first one first. That God is angry. Um, (laughs) I've tried to do sort of a mental exercise of figuring out what the range of reactions would be when, you know, sort of preacher types like myself come up and say, the wrath of God is revealed. Number one, I think the first reaction would be someone who would be like, ah, terrific, six more months of therapy for me, Les. Thanks for that. had no idea God was mad at me too. In other words, for some reason when you sort of talk like this, it feels like um, psychological dysfunction. Even to mention it. Another group of you, secondly, I think will have this immediate wave of guilt kind of come up in you where you're like, oh, you're right. And suddenly it starts to feel like the fundamentalist church you grew up in, where God's anger was kind of held over you to try to get you to start acting right. A third, a third op- reaction, I'm guessing, for modern Oxford people uh, is going to be along the lines of like, oh, this is one of those churches. Um, had no idea. Because for you, an angry God is at best a primitive view of God. And actually, at worst, the heart of what's wrong with fundamentalist religions. So it's really important for us to establish exactly what it is that the text says. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, here's what I want you to focus on. The tense of that verb. The wrath of God is revealed. That actually is something that's not happening in the past. It's present. It is here. There is a living, present reality to God's anger towards sin. And my suspicion is, is that this rising generation has no idea what to do with passages like this. And the reason why is, is because we tend to project onto God ideas about wrath that get polarized into two extremes. And it's the extremes that you and I are guilty of. On the one hand, we think to ourselves, okay, God is a God you're saying less who flies off at the handle, who, you know, sort of a, 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 is malicious, maybe vindictive even. That's just like us to think of God that way. But on the other hand, we might think, well, he's actually just like us in that he's way above anger. You know, God does what's supposed to do, which is to suppress any kind of negative emotions. In other words, we think God is like us. As a corrective to that, though, I I want to quote from John Stott, great theologian, late great theologian, who actually says, look, God's wrath is not some kind of arbitrary, capricious blowing off of steam that you and I do every day. Rather, it is a very settled, very controlled, holy antagonism towards all evil. I think he's worth quoting at length here. Bear with me for a second. He says the kind of God that appeals to most people today would be very easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be gentle, kind, accommodating. He would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. Hmm. We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won only after we have first cried, woe is me for I am lost. He goes on. The wrath of God then is almost totally different from human anger. It doesn't mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality. And God is never neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or ever to come to terms with it. It is his just judgment upon it. Another theologian, John Murray, talks in the same sort of line of thinking in his classic book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. When he says, far too frequently, we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. Hence, the reality of, this, of our sin and the reality of the wrath of God upon us do, don't ever come into our reckoning. We're not imbued with a profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty and his holiness. And sin, if we reckon with it at all, is little more than misfortune or maladjustment. My point is, this morning, is you just have to be careful before you shy away from this truth. No matter how often we might misconstrue it into something it's not. I think the doctrine of the wrath of God, it it needs to sit and stew for a while. Until such a time as when we've purged from our imaginations those versions of his anger, let's face it, that we were taught by our parents or our peers. Contrary to those, God's anger is is clean, it's clear-headed, it's unyielding. It is his inevitable opposition to anything that is set against his moral will. And the point for our purposes in this series is, is if we don't allow this to unsettle us, then it's little wonder that when we hear the announcement of God's grace in Jesus, as it is, that it lays so lightly on us. Of course it will. A lot of us complain of spiritual apathy. Well, is it possible that the reason why we're there is because we, we skipped a step, so to speak, and we went past this whole idea of why salvation was necessary to begin with? Okay, so that's the first point, that God is angry. Let's look at the second point, why is God angry? Well, I think you can summarize verses 18 to 32 in one sentence. This is my stab at it. God is angry at people who know better for, exchange, for worshiping things instead of him. Let me say that again. God is angry because people who know better worship things instead of him. Now break that down into two parts. The first part, God's anger is directed at people who know better. Bear with me for a second because this is the one that gets, I think, powerfully controversial in verses 19 through 21 because Paul is saying that deep down, no matter what human beings tell themselves, you have all kinds of knowledge about God. Namely, verse 20 says that there is a creator God and number two, that you're completely dependent on him. You've heard me on numerous occasions uh, tell the story uh, that I've, I've just I've milked for years because it's so helpful of a student I was talking to at the University of Memphis who sat down with me and he was like, Les, this is my question. I just want to know why God is hiding. Because if God wants for us to believe in him so badly, why would he make himself more obvious? We use phrases like, well, seeing is believing. And if that phrase is true, then it seems as if God has denied us the very thing we need in order to be able to believe, which is being able to see him. So why can't we see him? Well... This is where the Bible gets kind of all psychological on you, and we got to start to work through this. And them, no better place to begin than where we began our worship service today, in the Psalms, especially Psalm 19. Psalm 19 pictures King David having been struck by some beauty. We get the sense that it was the sunrise and the sunset that David was co- contemplating, and he sat down and wrote a poem about it. And he says this, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes through all the earth. Now look, as hard as this is for us to stomach, at the heart of Christian teaching is a conviction that God is, in fact, not hiding. Quite the opposite, at this very moment, the Bible says, he's actually making himself quite obvious, Theologians have made a very proper and helpful distinction between what we call special revelation of God's character and what we call natural or maybe general revelation of his character. Special revelation is that very specific, objective truth that we get from the pages of the Bible, from the Scripture. Natural or general revelation is that revelation of God's person that we get through the beauty of the world around us from the orderliness of the creation, from sunsets, from, from, from beautiful mountain ranges, from deep space photos, from the Hubble telescope, or now that new telescope. There's the, the Webb telescope is the new one that's gone out. All of those things, the Bible says, are telling us, you know there's a God. My thinking is, if you want to get offended at the Bible, this is a fantastic place to start. Because the truth is, God is saying, it's not just that you know something about me. My existence is obvious to you. Look at verse 20. He says, all these things have been clearly perceived. God is not hiding. (laughs) Now, so in verse 21, we find out that it actually is not God that is hiding. It is us that is hiding. Why? Because we know that if we acknowledge God to be who he is, then we can't be in control anymore. That's what it says. Human beings are stuck, as it were, in a matrix of their own creation where they can persist in believing that they are the master of their own destinies. That's the message. But look, don't don't miss this because it is the Bible's explanation for why humans don't believe in him that humankind is willfully pushing down the ideas in their minds that God might be there. Look at verse 18. It says that we suppress the truth. That verb there literally means to actively hold something down like a wild animal. (laughs) There is a wild animal in the heart of every breathing human that is trying to come and speak to the specificity of the knowledge of God. But you and I are holding that animal down. And the way we do it is is we slap on anti-God goggles. And these goggles fix our senses so that we never have to admit that he's there. That's what's really going on in your doubts about God. You offended yet? Well, But wait, there's more. Okay. It's not only that human beings know better, but then they rob God of the appreciation that he deserves as God, and they give it to, well, they give it to things. <laughs> Verse 23 describes all kinds of created things like birds and animals and creeping things, whatever. Tim Keller makes a great point about verse 25 when it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Keller says, if you notice something about that verse, there's no option in that list not to worship something. Which means human beings are wired to live for something. There is something in order to be a human being that must capture your imagination. It must capture your highest allegiances. You've got to find a resting place for your hopes as a human being. And the Bible says every human being has begun to look at something and say, If I can just have that, then I'll be something. I'll be somebody. So what is that for you? Because whatever you put in that blank is what you worship. It has nothing to do with whether you came to church this morning. (laughs) What I worship is active every single day of my life. Because the truth is, anything can become an idol. In verse 26 and 27, Paul links our idolatry to sexual desires, especially, as he says, homosexual desires. And a lot of people spin out on this. They're like, why does he talk about that? Well, because he's using an illustration. Sex, Paul knows, is a good gift of God's creation. But man, with his anti-God goggles on, twists what is good in creation into the opposite of what it was intended to be used for. In Paul's mind, homosexual sex acts are a vivid demonstration of the reversal of God's design. Not, by the way, because it's the worst of all sins. That's not the case. It's not because it's especially gross. It's quite the same as all of our various sexual struggles. It's just especially illustrative for what he's trying to illustrate there. I'll await your emails in the morning. <laughs> now, here's the deal. If this was the only time in which Paul was going to mention idolatry, you might think, I think Paul has sex on the brain. Maybe he's a little pervy, right? Why does he talk about this all the time? But when you go to places like Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, there he actually calls even covetousness idolatry. In other words, materialism, a love of money, even that could be idolatry, he says. Look, here's the point. Idolatry is looking to something for value and safety more than you look to God. In other words, he is the only thing that you were built to value in an ultimate sense. And so if you put it in these terms, you begin to realize, and this is a little unnerving for religious type people here, even your religion can be an idol. In other words, it's possible for me to look at all of the things that I do, my Bible reading, my faithful church attendance, uh, my my winning, sparkling child-rearing to produce well-adjusted, non-embarrassing children. That was funnier than that, than the reaction. got. The parents laughed nervously at that point. But all of those things, when all of a sudden I look at those things and say, this is what makes me, me, the Bible says, even that's idolatry. Even the exercise of faith can be so if we don't set God in the center of it all. Look, until you start to use the framework of idolatry, this is a simple aside, you really don't know anything about your life. Years ago, I was able to read an article by the late David Powlison called uh, Vanity Fair and Idols of the Heart. And in this article, he simply unpacks how it is that what you and I call our personality, just the way we are, is really just a a function of a complex of idolatries that are working in any given way to produce what you are. In other words, we look and we say, why is it that I have a sense of self? What is my sense of self? Who am I? I, Why do I do what I do? Why do I fly off the handle? Why, Why am I triggered by that stuff over there? What is it that makes me angry? What is it that makes me super happy? In other words, all these things are a matter of a complex that are fashioning me. They are idols that are trying to fashion me into their image. And are you ready for this? God's not happy about it. And he's not happy about it because people have set something in the center of their hearts that was never designed to be there. And the effects of which are disastrous which is a fantastic lead into the final point. We see that God is angry. We see why God is angry. We've got to figure out, though, how he's angry. Because if you look there at verses 24 and 26 and 28, in those three verses, there's a phrase that Paul uses to sort of unpack the manner of God's wrath, and therefore the way in which you and I can recognize it. God's anger is manifest in, here's the phrase, giving them over. Verse 24 describes what we were given over to. The word there is lust. And again, we usually think of sex when we think of that word, but it's actually far more broader than just sex. The Greek word translated there literally means over-desire. It means super-desire or an inordinate desire that you can't control. In other words, Paul is talking about addiction. That's the manner of God's wrath is addiction. Paul is saying that the peculiar nature of idolatry is it leads you to the very thing that you didn't want from the thing. We go to our idols because we hope that it'll keep us in control. But in the end, the idol's controlling us. We thought that it would hold out freedom for us, but instead we become robots. We become slaves. And what happens is you don't just experience disappointments in life, but you're so consumed by your idol wanting to be in its image that when it gets threatened, you want to die. I had one theologian say that the devil always wants the destruction of, of the host. Suicidal thoughts are themselves a, a, a logical extension of our ultimate idols because they'll always be threatened in this life. Only God can't be threatened there. Here's the point. Being controlled by our idols dehumanizes you, and it leads you to come like an animal. There's a whole theology of, how, of, of man's relationship to animals in the Bible. I wish we had time for it. But what happens is we consume each other. That list in verses 29 to 31 that Johnny read for us, that shows a bunch of relational consumers, societal consumers. We're people who feed on each other and hurt one another. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 15, when he warns the Galatians to stop biting and devouring each other. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about the way that we hurt and destroy each other with our words and the way we act. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's imagine there's two women who lose their job on the exact same day. The first lady is powerfully disappointed. She weeps over the loss. She worries mightily about what she's going to do next. But as days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months, she finds herself getting over it. She finds herself able to adjust and move forward. The second woman, on the other hand, actually is not just disappointed, she's devastated. She cries herself to sleep at night out of pure rage. She lashes out to all of her closest friends about her former boss. She can't even see how unhealthy she's becoming as she does. Maybe even she self-medicates by doing a lot of day drinking. She looks for opportunities where she can run down her former employer. And if you ask her about it, even years later, she will explode in vitriol about it. So much so that her friends have learned that we, uh, we just don't go there when it comes to our relationship with her. Now, here's my question. What's the difference? Two people in exact same circumstances, but entirely different reactions. Why? Because it goes back to idolatry. And the point is the idolatry of the latter person is hurting her. And it's hurting her friends around her. And God says, those image bearers are created in my image. And I'm not happy about that. When you hurt yourself and those around you, that is costly. But the crazy thing is, with that idolatry of that latter person, she's looking at this thing that she wants so badly, but she realizes she also can't live without it. That's addiction. A couple of months ago, I had my, my, uh, my phone on shuffle for my music, and uh, one of my favorite songs by the '80s uh, performer, Carla Bonoff. Anybody remember Carla Bonoff? She's fantastic. She's got a song called "Lose Again." which is one of the most pathetic, you know, sort of uh, torch music you've ever heard in your entire life. It's fantastic. The chorus goes like this. She says, "You know, nothing can free me from this ball and chain, but I made up my mind I would leave today. But you're keeping me going. I know it's insane because I love you and then I lose again." You ever felt that way? What is it that you want, more than anything else in the world, to be free of, but yet that one thing is the thing that's keeping you going? That's insanity. And that insanity is God's anger. That's what it is. It is the wrath of God revealed right now. Because God has made this beautiful creation, and we're destroying it. He who owns the cattle of a thousand hills, which includes human beings, takes it personally when we hurt people that are created in his image. It's an expression of his own glory. They're, in my, they're created in my image, therefore they're glorious. And when you hurt them, you hurt me. And my simple point this morning is this. I just don't think we're spiritually healthy until we come to grips with that and let it sit. Now look, you know me well enough to know that I, I just can't end a sermon that darkly. And let's be honest, there's not a ton of light in this passage, but we we work through the Bible here. That's what we do. But I simply want to throw one small thing in conclusion, and that is that it should not be so hard to conceive when we see how the Bible frames the issue of idolatry, the means by which God is going to cure our addictive dehumanization. In other words, if the problem is that we have found the creature more fascinating and more beautiful and more desirable than the Creator, then the only way to break the spell is if He, in the end, shows Himself to be altogether lovely and better than my idols. In other words, the path, regardless of what it is, and we choose all kinds of paths, we wanna break the spell too. We want the spell to be broken, and so we're like, I know, I'll just feel guilty more. Or how about a little more shame? If I sort of heap that on myself and feel weighted down, maybe that will atone for it. Maybe we say things like, well, you know, I'm at a stage in life where I'm just starting over. Maybe we try a little more willpower. Maybe we thought to ourselves, I know, I'll ask Jesus in my heart again in the hopes of fixing it. But here's the deal. None of that's going to break the spell. The only thing that breaks the spell is to all of a sudden see what Jesus has done, see who he is, and realize that's worth getting, and it's better than this. Hey, and here's a little power flash for you. You don't just learn that once. That happens over and over and over and over again. It's called the Christian life. It's called living in union with Christ. And I just, I just want to hold it out there as a carrot. <laughs> That even though we can't dive into that, what you're going to see unpacked in the rest of Romans is a glorious exposition of what was beautiful about Jesus' death on behalf of his people. Interested? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, draw us in. We want to see. We want to understand. Uh, Idols have the ability to blind us as well, Lord, and so it may be that we're not even moved by any of this, which may be evidence that we're just in that much of a difficult position. But that phrase, the wrath of God, it makes us unsettled, And maybe that's where you need us for a moment. We pray that you'd end in the face of Jesus so that we might see his beauties. Especially as we sing, we know where the path is. Would you lead us there? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.